1: Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. It is my pleasure to welcome Stan B.H. Tan Tangbao to the program. Professor Tan Tangbao is a Vietnamologist, and today we're discussing his book, co-authored with Quen Van Minh, Playing Jazz in Socialist Vietnam, Quen Van Minh, and Jazz in Hanoi, out in 2021 with the University Press of Mississippi. Professor Tan Thang Bo, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much, Adam.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: Can you tell us about why you decided to write this book?
0: Sure. Um, so I'm a Vietnamologist. When I started my research in Vietnam, that was back in 1997, I never thought I would find jazz in Vietnam. So prior to going to Vietnam, I I was very much a jazz enthusiast. So I've been listening to jazz for a very long time. Musically, I'm literate, but I can't really play music that well. I can do some basic stuff on on the saxophone. Very, very fundamental stuff on the guitar. That's about it. But I, I listen to jazz every day. So that's the first thing I do in the morning and the last thing I do before I go to bed. So when I started doing field work in Vietnam back in 1997, I didn't expect to find any jazz. And I was in the villages in the Mekong Delta, so there wasn't any jazz. And by the time I finished my field work, the first thing I do when I get home to Singapore, I put on some jazz music. Then along the way, as I started traveling to Hanoi, I found out that there was a jazz club in Hanoi. And so I visited the jazz club, it was quite nice. It was quite nice. At that time, they, they moved around a fair bit. Then later on, in 2001, Kun Van Ming and his band visited Singapore, they did like a nine-day tour in Singapore, giving performances all over the place, including at the National University of Singapore. So I heard them, I was fascinated. So I went back to Vietnam again, went back to the jazz club, I bought his CD, I met up with him, I got his autograph, So every time I visited Hanoi, I would go to the jazz club in the evening and sit down there for at least a set, but it just never crossed my mind that someone should write something about jazz in Hanoi. I mean, like most people just find it's it's a novelty. It's fascinating to have jazz in Hanoi. But over time, as I started talking to Ming and he started telling me his stories about how he started playing jazz in Vietnam, listening to jazz just thought, hey, wait a minute, that's a really fascinating story in the sense that it just kind of re- rang in my head that jazz in Vietnam is quite an unlikely thing. And he started doing all this thing opening a jazz club back in the 1990s. Well, that was something. I remember being in Vietnam in the late 1990s and, and it wasn't easy. A lot of things were like kind of like um, under very tight controls. What CDs we could bring in, what music we could bring in, what books we could bring into Vietnam. This was all tightly controlled. And the best part was this, because I, I've heard him play in Singapore and he introduced quite a fair bit of his original compositions. They're quite Vietnamese jazz. And it is and as I really listened to it, it, it was really an, a very nuanced, original sound. And to think about this, a jazz club in Hanoi, in the old capital city, the current political center, of all places in Hanoi, they play three sets every night at that time before switching on to two sets because the, the clubs have to be closed by 12 midnight. Before that, they could close at 1 or 2 a.m. Just fine. And it's really jazz every night. 7 days a week, they don't close until 10 holidays, That's a Vietnamese New Year. I was thinking, this is something I, we, we should start writing about, you know, doing some research, it tells you a lot of stories about it. So I started, because my own work was based in the central highlands, and then later on in the northern uplands of Vietnam, and then across the border to China, um, so so I started Doing some research to see, oh, see, if anyone has written anything about jazz in Vietnam? Um, to my surprise, none. So I thought maybe someone should write this story. So one, one, but it just didn't cross my mind that I would be the one doing it. So what happened was that I, I started to get to know Ming better because I go to his clubs so often. And I just sit there with my beer, enjoy the music. Sometimes he would sit down and talk with me. So there was, there was one night we sat and we started talking during the set. And after the set, he brought over a bottle of whiskey. I remember it was a Johnny Walker black label, a very simple bottle of whiskey. And we started sitting down and we started drinking. He said, there's a flight to catch later in, in, in the morning. So it's okay, we just talk and he'll go straight to the airport from from the club. So we started talking and he told me more stories of his childhood, how he started learning jazz and all that. I think I, I must be pretty drunk by then. And I suggested to Ming that, you know, someone should write your story. And he said, well, no one's writing. I mean, I have a lot of reporters come and go They're." interview me, write short stories in there. But no one really sat down to say that they are going to write a biography or, um, or help me write a memo. So, so I suggested to him that, why don't you let me try? But the thing is, because I'm so busy with other projects, you have to give me time, not like a few months, like a few years. The next thing I know, I, I think we bottoms up our whiskey. We shook our hands and the project was was born. So that was how the project came about. And it, to this day, I'm still quite surprised that not too many Vietnamologists are interested in knowing more, studying more, analyzing more about the existence of jazz in, in Vietnam. So yeah, so that's my response to your First question.
1: And this book has so much in it. I learned about Jazz. I learned about Vietnam. I learned about his life. What, what audience did you have in mind with this book?
0: So um, as, as I mentioned, the original sto- origin story of the, of the book was that like, I, I told Ming that I'm going to write your, your biography. So when I s- suggested that, it was a, just a simple biography. You know, then as I started interviewing him and working on the interviews, planning up how we're going to do this, I, I was at that time I was teaching at the National University of Singapore and thought, oh, maybe I should write something a little bit more sophisticated, something that is more within the field of Southeast Asian studies or Vietnam studies to be more specific. So that was a plan that I will write for the Vietnam studies, the Southeast Asian studies, the Asian studies, readers, something that's very unscholarly. Um, then over time, as I start working with him, I realized that I really need to fill a lot more of the gaps, you know, the background and do some comparative work with the stories of Jess elsewhere. There wasn't much in Asia. Most of the studies uh, that that were covered were about Japan, a little bit about China before the communists came to power. Um, bits and pieces here and there on other countries, very little. Um, But there were a lot written about North America and Europe. So I thought, oh, I should write this book in such a way that it should also address the readership in jazz studies and to a certain extent, ethnomusicologists. By that time, the structure, the format of the book was still very much on, uh, uh, I would call it something like the political history of Vietnam through the life story of Ming and jazz in, in Vietnam, in, in Hanoi to be more specific. So. That that was the original plan. But I, I wasn't very comfortable with it when I started trying writing about what I have at the, the materials I have at that time because I felt that I wasn't doing justice to this person, to this incredible musician. I wasn't doing justice to the story of Jazz and and the many people who took part in this endeavour, whether together or separately, individually, collectively, and I thought, I need to spend more time on it. I have to take a different approach. So what was initially, initially just a two to three year project, dragged on. And then there was also some personal um, um, junctures in my own life, which um, I wasn't productive for, couple of years. So something happened in my own life, I wasn't very productive in in, in my academic career for a couple of years. Then I moved to Japan. So after moving to Japan, um, my wife reminded me that it seems to me you owe someone a book. And I said, that's true. So at that time I was very busy with Kachin Life Stories, a public anthropology project. I said, yes, I owe someone a book. I should finish that up. So I made an effort that every year I would spend one month, at least one month in Hanoi with Ming. And he said, yes, please let us continue with that. I know you're still working on it." So throughout for that five to six years in Japan, I would spend about one month with Ming. So when I started doing that, I realized that, Ooh, actually I'm not just writing for academics. I'm also writing for the musicians in Vietnam, those people who took part in this endeavor, and the people who have been supporting me all this time, his audience, his his fans. So it was then that I realized that uh, this book has got to be written in a rather nuanced way. It cannot be the usual way. I, ah, as yes, an academic approaching, writing in very dense language, um, very analytical, with a lot of information, data thrown in and analyzed, it has to feature Ming's voice. So the, the audience I have in mind start, started to change. I have to write for both the general audience, his fans, as well as academics. So that's how that the conception of the audience should change and the writing kind of continued to drag on because I have to experiment a little bit with the first couple of chapters that I started writing. And it helped that there was this rather avant-garde journal at that time, the Journal of Narrative Politics. They really liked this kind of stuff. So I, I tested the very first chapter I wrote out with them and they gave very good advice and suggestions on how to really make it work. So I published one chapter, and it was very well received. And when I look at it, oh, this is something, I'll I'll go back to it again and again, because usually we don't like to read our own stuff, but I, I went back to that. So I did that. I realized that, okay, so this is kind of like that eclectic approach I can use to address the different readers. That started coming into the project that I thought would, would, would be able to address the different readers that I started to imagine. So that's why the book is the way it is. And I think for the readers, regardless of where you hang your jacket, that is, whether you see yourself as an academic, an anthropologist, an ethnomusicologist, a fan, a non fan. I think they'll, they'll, you will pick up this book and, and go through it. Sorry for my really long answer to that.
1: <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, the bulk of the book is told using Mr. Main's own words. Can you talk about your decision to move in that direction?
0: Sure. Um, so I, I kind of um, alluded to that uh, in, in my earlier answer. So. In the book, I describe this style of writing as an exercise in collaborative narrative writing. It's um, quite fascinating because I thought, I really want to use its voice, but this is not going to be a transcription of our conversation. So this is how I have to um, address this question in the sense that um, the book was based on a lot of our informal conversations. Sometimes we recorded these informal conversations. I took my recorder I said, it we are just going to have drinks. We're going to just smoke and talk. But I want to switch on the recorder. I said, go ahead. So a lot based off there. And there were a lot of um, interviews, interviews like sessions that went on for like three, four hours. Some of these interviews were recorded on video. Some were not. Some parts of it were recorded, some parts were not because I forgot to switch on the recorder, for example, or the battery ran out, or, or these kind of things happened along the way. <laughs> so we had all these kind of um, um, so called recorded sessions, unrecorded sessions, a little bit more formal sessions, very informal sessions. And he would talk about the same topic in a very different way to connect to this part of the story, to connect to the other aspects of his life. So when I started going through all the interviews that we have listening to, then I find that if I just transcribe what he said, it won't work. It makes sense to me because I spent so much time with him. It's not gonna make sense to anyone else. So what I did was, when I find after this, like after almost, let's say, eight years of conversations, what I did was I started to piece together when I wrote that first um, chapter. I pieced together different parts of our conversations on this topic that he he kept repeating this topic, but with different things, different information, alluding to different things, connecting different things. I pieced together one part, piece together another part that is the same topic from over eight years. So that it kind of reads like a flowing topic. If he had edited it himself, it might look like that. And these other information that he has will go into another aspect of So they are all in there. So I tried that now. I worked with him. Okay. So I, I told him, this is the account of the story you told me. Basically the points we covered here, they are this, 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 and this. Works. Yeah, you, you know the you know the story. So I started writing and it kind of really brings up his um persona and brings up his background as well as as a Vietnamese musician who grew up during the 1950s and 60s then transition through the 70s, that's after reunification to the early 80s. What most Hanoians will tell you, the toughest part of life was in the early 80s before the Doi Mui reforms that opened up to the market and the whole world changed. So the way he tells his stories reflect that, that transition. And the only way I think that can be presented to the reader was to try to keep intact the phrases that he used, the chronology of the story that he remembers, and sometimes the repetition. So you'll find in, in the book, some, certain things kept repeating throughout the book, but in a different, slightly different way. So that explains why a, the, the writing uses are that's me talking to the reader, but it's also filled with my own interventions. Now my own interventions. These were actual interventions in the sense that when we were having that conversation, and when he talks about, for example, um, his second encounter with jazz, a vinyl record that a friend brought back from Eastern Europe, and he said, there, "There, was jazz there," and I started, "Oh yes, I read about this." So we having we started having that discussion about jazz in Eastern Europe. And That's just in socialism. This shouldn't be a problem here. And and he started telling all those related stories that that I I managed to bring up (laughs) in the chapters. So those interventions were in in many ways my actual interventions. So But because this is going to be my voice, so I tried to write it in a more easy-to-access manner but analytically informed fashion for the reader. So keeping in mind that my readership is quite broad, so it is, it's quite difficult to balance how academically um, centered is the language going to be, the analysis is going to be, and then compare it to an, another just coming in. So that's why you have all those intervention passages for me. And that was at a time when I realized that uh, I have to place this. His story is not just based in Vietnam. It's very global because without all those things happening, it, it wouldn't happen which is why I have those two interludes. Interlude one, jazz behind the iron curtain. Interlude two, jazz in Asia, to let readers see the larger context in which jazz has similar challenges in Asia, wherever it it was played, from Japan, China, India, and Southeast Asia. So that kind of explains the, uh, style of writing.
1: And Mr. Min's life mission, really, as you write in the book over and over again, is to bring jazz to Vietnam, right? To, you use the term, uh, the soundscape of Vietnam, to bring jazz into the soundscape of Vietnam. Can you talk about some of the difficulties he's faced in trying to achieve this?
0: Um, sure. I think the first difficulty, as um, it's very clearly revealed in Min's own story, was the musical context. So Ming himself was born in 1954. From 1954 onwards, uh, you wouldn't be able to find any more jazz, whatever that was, swing, early swing, dance hall music, uh, Western popular music, you would you wouldn't be able to find that in northern Vietnam, in the socialist Vietnam. From 1954 onwards. What you have would be, if since there were no jazz, you would have a lot of revolutionary music. So by revolutionary music, we're talking about the quite or red music. So you have basically um, around about two times, one is um, revolutionary songs for people to sing, to encourage them to join in, support the revolutionary effort of changing Vietnam, fighting the war, changing society. So it's filled with that, loads and loads of that. And this was the only music that was like really encouraged and you could really hear in the radio. The second type of revolutionary music, which took a little bit of time to come up, are more orchestral or instrumental music. So you have a lot of all these uh, very um, reputable Vietnamese composers writing um, okay, instrumental orchestral-based um, Compositions, for to support the revolution, the war effort, and all that, you do hear them, but not as often as the revolutionary songs. You hear a lot of these on radio. So then the next set of songs that you will hear on radio and you hear in live performance by the song and dance troupe, the artist troupes, etc., will be traditional folk, folk and ethnic music, as imagined by the regime. Because not all traditional music good, not all arrangements feed the revolution at that time so he has to feed the regime's conception of what is good ethnic music, what is good and appropriate ethnic music and, uh, and folk music, you hear that too then of course there are foreign music at that time but mainly foreign revolutionary songs uh, compositions or Folk music from communist, so- socialist allies, North Korea, China, Soviet Union, and Eastern Europe. You hear that, but not as much as this. Some classical music as well, but not as much compared to the, the formal group. So that is the soundscape. That was a music context. So basically, Ming was trapped in this. But informally, uh, that were light music. What was light music? Music that has very little um political or no political connotations at all. This would allow for informal occasions. You can play that for weddings, birthday celebrations, uh, social get-together, so long as it's not in the official stage and not in the public-public sphere. So you have that and admin hear this music from his parents, other senior musicians playing. He himself later played some of this music, quite a lot of this music, especially for weddings. So they'll play um, old instrumental dance music, Western dance music, songs like La Paloma, Simone. And they play a lot of (laughs) polkas. Believe it or not, a lot of polkas for people to do social dancing. (laughs) So there's the soundscape, but there's no jazz. It's quite difficult to imagine someone falling in love with jazz in this musical context. Then there is also the social musical context in the sense that, number one, an instrument like the saxophone, which is the most closely related to jazz music, was not very, um, how, how should I put it, uh, socially accepted. It's just treated as um, an instrument that's only played, dancing, fun music. It's not a serious, proper, mainstream instrument. So you wouldn't see this in, on the official stage and not, not much there, were, but not, not, not many people were doing it. So for, for him to learn saxophone, it was, it took a while to leave, get into that. Then the third thing is that, um, we, we, we know the context of music within Vietnam and there's really not not much access to external music. You know, in those days, if you have a radio, you have to register it with the government. And when you register it with the government, you have to fill in a form, show you a small booklet, and beneath, right on the front page of the small booklet, is "listening to enemies radio stations prohibited." <laughs> so you can tune and all that, but if anyone caught you listening to enemy station, you'd be in trouble. So that's what happened to Ming, because he was tuning, tuning, and he found jazz, <laughs> which, which was quite likely released Conover's um, Music USA Jazz Hour a few times or a few nights in a row, and his father found out. The father stopped him from doing that, gave away the radio. <laughs> but that was his first encounter with jazz. <laughs> so, so there's this taboo in the sense that you're not supposed to listen to this kind of music. Then even if you started learning it. So Ming heard these sounds, totally fascinated by it. But if he's going to play phrase for phrase or the entire tune that he can remember, he will be playing it alone. No one can play with him. Because not too many people were listening or have the ability to just catch what they heard once or twice and just play it out this way. And also, if you just play jazz as exactly what he heard from the radio, There's no audience. People say, what nonsense are you playing? Don't do that. (laughs) So he has to like take what he has heard and just sneak in phrases here and there to make the normal pokers, um, light music, dance music, a little bit more bouncy, a little bit more interesting. Uh, And people find, oh, that's that's nice stuff. He's a very good player. We've never heard anyone play like this, but... Without any suspicion that he's playing jazz, so that that was the musical context, and it's a huge difficulty in a sense because what well, it end up with him doing this by himself all alone. Then the next thing, of course, is the clearly the political context. This was during the war years. Um, as we all know, jazz is originated from America. So if outrightly tell people this is jazz. It's like, no, you're not supposed to play American music. We're fighting a war with them. So it turned out that for someone like Ming, he didn't even know that music he was listening to was called jazz for a long time, until much later. So you can't do that. There's no way you can do that openly. You mentioned the word jazz. Uh Uh-huh. Sorry, you shouldn't do that. Please don't. And they were in the midst of very intense socialist revolution. You have the the green land reforms. Then you have the, cooperate, the collectivization of production of agriculture. All effort, all resources will focus on the socialist revolution and the war. So if you're a musician, you're supposed to contribute to these two things with your musical talent and nothing else. If you're doing anything that's frivolous, that's not contributing to this, you're wasting valuable resources. You're unproductive. So again, you can't do that. That's a limitation. And of course, then there is the cultural context in the sense that, um, yes, they have social dancing that they inherited from the colonial era and all that. And then there's the connotation that early days, jazz swing and all those dance hall music. These are improper, morally questionable. So that is also a a problem, culturally speaking. How are you going to position jazz as what it is or what people thought it was or something else? So these were the two sets of real challenges that Ming faced when he started Discovering Jazz. He has to be very careful. And this is revealed in his three encounters with Jazz in the book, and until the day he actually pre, um, presented a version of Jazz in the public sphere later.
1: Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit more about these three encounters. We've already mentioned the first one was with this transistor radio that his father then took away. The second one was with a vinyl record a couple years later, right? With a friend brought it from Eastern Europe. And then the third one? The third one was um,
0: when he traveled to Saigon after the war. And he taught to me well, about Saigon, was under American influence for a long time. By then he knew this was called jazz, by then he knew this was strongly associated with American music, he was very careful. So when he was in Saigon, he was like, I'm going to find jazz in Saigon. He walked around, there was shops selling, um, they have that, this long street of shots selling um, vinyl records, cassette tapes in, in Saigon, but by then people had. Either had either destroyed their collection, gave away their collection, or hidden it somewhere. And they won't let anyone know, especially if you are a stranger from the north, they can tell by your accent straight away. And by the clothes you wear, so different from us. So when Ning was doing that, trying to find this, he couldn't find anything until he started asking around. I mean, he, he, he's a... He's a he has a certain charm about him, a very earnest charm that, look, I'm just interested in music, nothing else. I have no other motives. And, and you will believe him because that is really what he what is. <laughs> so and in the book, I, I um, recounted this episode where the man selling all these old cassettes were persuaded by his sincerity and dug up one cassette for him, Say, we can try this. He saw the cover a black man with a band and a woman saying, you oh, the this stuff must be jazz, but he, he, you have to be very careful because money doesn't come easy. And he had the man try out on a cassette tape player. Ooh, okay, that's the music I want. Then he had no problem. I don't have a cassette tape player. So what if I could buy a cassette? And he offered to buy the player. He didn't have enough money. He thought, like, I'm going back to borrow for my friend. I'm going to come back and get this player. And he asked the man to hold the machine for him. The man was like, look, if you're really so interested, why don't you just give me what you have and take the player and the cassette with you. So with that single cassette, he listened to it. He transcribed whatever he could. Until the tape, you can't play and was totally destroyed <laughs> from all the repeated listening. He transcribed it and started practicing and make sense of it himself. So that third encounter was really very crucial because that was like a full, full, in indulgent kind of encounter with jazz music, and it changed everything for him. That was that that really allowed him to start bringing something very different to the years of other musicians in the late nineteen seventies. Because what happened in in Vietnam, especially in the north in the late 1970s, was that after the war, people, this was peacetime Vietnam, before the border war with China, people really wanted music that's more lighthearted. And it was also the belated hippie era, people were listening to disco. All this music from the south, rock and roll, disco started coming up north, People don't, don't really want to listen to fight another war. There's no war to fight now. Uh, the agreement reforms we are now all collectivized. What else do you want? So they wanted light music. That's what we um, uh, music historians call the, the light music era in the late 1970s. But the problem is this. A lot of the northern musicians were so used to the red music, the revolutionary music, the very straightforward music, of their time, they grew up with that and traditional music that they had a hard time keeping up with this more upbeat, more free flowing style of rock and roll, a bit of jazz, instrumental rock, etc. So, when Ning was able to do all this throughout his years of encounter jazz experimentation, and then that third encounter, he was able to bring something different. It was fresh to the ears of everyone and it allowed him to really stand up and uh, established a name for himself in the late 1970s and early 1980s as one of those front runners of light music. So the uh, those three encounters were significant in terms of the early development of ideas, musical ideas. in.
1: And so now we've talked a little bit about the late 70s and the early 80s, and Mr. Ming at this time is in his uh, late 20s, and then he enters his 30s, and then the Doi Moi reforms happen, and everything changes, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
0: So, um, let me see. Okay, yeah. So, the first change set of changes that all these musicians experienced with the coming of Doi Mon was the economic condition of being a musician of being an artist in socialist Vietnam During the subsidy period that is before the Doi Mon reforms under the central command economy musicians receive not just a salary they also receive um, income in kind like milk powder, a bit more rice, sugar, um, a bit more meat here and all this, to make sure that they are able to fulfill their responsibilities as artists and continue to improve themselves. So that was significant in the sense that if you are a musician of stern grade, of the Stole chair, you get a little bit more, a little bit more. It was a luxury. So benefits everyone in the family. You were really able to provide for your family. But with the Doi reforms, the market economy, that was no longer sufficient. If you want to buy um, a little bit more books, for example, to, to have your children able to learn some English on their own, you'll buy it from the market. That costs money. Everyone was transitioning from the bicycle to the motorbike. Milk powder is not going to get you a motorbike. You have to do something else. So, And there was also a time when you could start taking uh, gigs as a licensed musician, as a professionally trained musician. You could take commercial gigs. People would pay you a lot more money than your salary to do like a 30-minute gig for a birthday celebration anniversary celebration all kinds of things so you have to start doing that in the sense that if you still rely on what you have you can't do anything for a family you can't take care of them they can't learn new things they can't have better jackets they can't have better clothes they can't eat better everything change so the economic condition change so they really have to be able and be willing to take up all these side gigs outside their official um. Work, so that's the thing, and it's also at the same time that a lot of music that were prohibited, restricted, pre-war music or what we call the nhạc dân and what was branded as yellow music, nhạc vàng, especially the southern Vietnamese popular music, that were prohibited, they could it was slowly rehabilitated after the Doi Moe reforms because people really want to listen to this music. And there were a lot of gigs for people to come, for musicians to play these kind of songs. Finally, after 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, we could listen to these songs again. And these are the gigs that paid really well. And it allows them to do it. So for me at that time, this was a double-edged opportunity in the sense that, okay, I do this, I could earn pretty good money and take good care of my family. I could even establish a very good name for myself as a musician. But that also means that um, I, he probably has to compromise on his mission of bringing jazz to Vietnam. Because once you go down that path, you'll be associated as someone who runs after the market. In Vietnamese it's called Tell Teacher. So, but Min wants to make sure that he continues to develop his reputation, his respectability as not just a musician, as an artist. Which brings me to my third point, that is for Vietnamese musicians, they are considered as professional musicians because that's their job. They're all professionally trained, but not all. Ming himself never went to school <laughs> to to study music, but so long as an employer, but a professional. Performing arts troupe. You're a professional musician. As a professional musician, you're simply known as a nyakkong or a music laborer. Your job is to produce music. That's it. But you want to also be respected as an artist, as a nyak So, in order to do that, you need to not just have solid skills musicality as a musician but you need to have products you need to show that you can produce something different write your own music so if you keep going the other round of making good money becoming a popular musician it's quite difficult for you to be recognized for your artistic pursuits and i'm not saying the others are not artists they are but here you have in the Vietnamese music circle, you have this thing called Nghệ thuật meaning high artistic values as determined by the state institutions, such as the Association of Musicians, the National Music Conservatoire. And of course, all these um, performing arts troops, you're supposed to be the best, then they hire you. So if you're doing nonsense, it's like, oh, what are you doing there? So this kind of became a double-edged sword. So again, things change in the sense that, uh, you have to decide which route you're going to make. And of course, the two two other things that matter for the changes that came with Doi of course, there's one, the availability of other musical resources in terms of music from overseas. In the early years, it's not much played on the radio or television. It has to be better to make sure that these are proper things that we can broadcast to the public. Uh, people will bring in cassette tapes. Foreigners will bring heavy metal rock, jazz, different kinds of music for people to listen to, um, music scores, fake books for music, jazz musicians. They're like, whoa, what's all this thing? Oh, we can actually do that. Instruction books, instruction videos, all these things, musicians like you know, I mean, they start being professional musicians. They have more access to it than other people, because of the exchanges with visiting um, musicians arranged by the embassies and all that. And of course, the final thing was the political loosening of um, control. Culturally speaking, in, in the sense that they want musicians to really try, you know, or things are changing try and be creative again. Of course, under the purview of the regime, many got into trouble, some did not. So you it, it, it really have to maneuver very carefully. And Ming was very much aware of that, especially after the Chen Tien episode. episode, uh, guitarist and singer who wrote songs that talk about society, the suffering society, IT, the state of society at that time, and got to trouble and Ho Chi Minh City had to run back to the north. He's actually from the north. He was actually in the same troop as Ming when all those things happened. So Ming was like, okay, we have to be really careful. So these were the things that changed and these were the, the kind of difficulties that they started to face with all these new opportunities as well.
1: And at the same time, Mr. Minh also had personal problems going on that affected his life, right? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. Well, those personal problems actually started back in the 70s when the first one was when he was initially playing in a song and dance troupe in Hattai, which is just outside Hanoi. And his father and mother wanted him to transfer over to Hanoi, back to Hanoi to Tang Long Song and Dance Troop, one of the premier troops in, in Vietnam he passed the audition. But when they asked for his, do you have a diploma in music? He said, no, I study at home. How could I have a diploma? <laughs> and they said, sorry, we cannot accept you. By then, he had already left Hatay Chuk. So he had no um, work unit that he was attached to. He stayed at home. So when the neighborhood was doing the, what they call the labor booklet, so he was one of those unemployed, unproductive, unconscientious member of society. So he was um, sent up to the, the neighborhood committee for criticism every night. And he had to do self-criticism as well. So he quickly, he quickly found another job through a friend, um, working in, in, a, in uh, the College of Sports and physical education, and but not as a musician, he was just working in the propaganda unit where he had to play some music for the people to do exercise, help them with their um, artistic productions and all that, but he wasn't really playing with it. But it gave him a lot of time to practice the saxophone. So that was the first... Um, I would say musical crisis in his life, in the sense that suddenly I'm not a professional musician. So he, with that, he went back. Later on, he was able to um, join a professional troupe and then re rejoin re- rejoin the professional mu- music scene. I mean, by the early nineteen eighties, after the third encounter, he was superb his playing. So he auditioned for the Tang Longso and Dance troupe again. They were so amazed. They said, look, you have got to join us. This is what we're offering you now. They said, you don't remember me? You rejected me several years ago because I didn't have a diploma. You know, I still don't have a diploma. He said, it's no longer important. We want you. So I allowed him back. But then soon after that, he had another problem in the sense that his first marriage started to break down. So he was, he became, he divorced his wife became a single father to two kids. And that's when Doi Mui happens. Let the mid-1980s. So we mentioned earlier that if you don't start taking up more gigs, have a better income, it's very difficult for you to take very good care of a family at that time. So if he keeps doing all these gigs, he can't take care of his... all these gigs, he can't take care of his two children. So he has to make a choice. And he was offered a chance by a friend to, why don't you go and do some trading business with me. By then, the north-south um, train line in Vietnam was uh, one of the was the busiest conduit for travel. You could make very good money by doing trading along that line, buying and selling, buying and selling. So his friend, and he had did some gigs, informal gigs for the railway agency for MSH, oh, you know, these opportunities are available, this is how you can do it properly, and it was very attractive because his friend was making a lot of money, but that means he can't play music. So that was the second musical crisis in life of making that decision or not. Well, he didn't choose to be a trader, lucky for us. <laughs> then the third crisis came later on was when it's kind of, it could be seen, seen, as a crisis. And unfortunately was when he was given the opportunity to change his role. He was invited to join the National Conservatoire after his two solo recitals in 1988 and 1989 to join the National Conservatoire as a lecturer of saxophone. Now, to us, this might not seem like a problem. He's still a musician. Yeah? And the National Conservatory is a lot more prestigious. But it is a problem in Vietnam in the sense that he already arrived at that pinnacle of his career as a performing musician. So in Vietnamese, they would call him a Nha Si Biu It's very different from someone who is a teacher. So he has already done that, but to be as a credible, recognized teacher at the National Conservatoire, you need to have the diplomas, the degree, the formal training, a string of recitals, awards, and most of these lecturers were trained overseas at very, very prestigious conservatoires in Europe, such as Tchaikovsky Conservatoire. So that crisis was, for him was, if I continue to stay as a performing musician, I could do a lot of things. But if I transition over there, I am a nobody, But but I could start from scratch and do two things that I've always wanted to do. Number one, Is to teach the saxophone at the National Conservatory because no one was, the saxophone was never a major, not even a minor, because it was not seen as a proper mainstream instrument. It was an instrument for fun. So he could create something really, really valuable over there. The second thing, they allow him, if you are teaching that, of course you have to teach jazz. (laughs) Although not, at that time, not yet as like a major or even a minor because to learn a saxophone, you have to learn different things. So he was allowed to do that. But the thing is that means he can't take up as many gigs as he used to do when he was a performing musician. So as a lecturer at the National Conservatoire, you cannot just take any gigs that come along. They need to be very, respectable gigs, very formal stuff. And usually this kind don't pay as much as a lot of all those popular music gigs. So that was the next crisis that he had to face. And it was tough on him because his two children were growing up at that time in their teenage years, approaching teenage years. And he really needs to take good care of them, you know, giving them, and he was teaching the, the younger son, the saxophone. He has shown a lot of promise and talent, he needs to really nurture him. So he has to make that decision, and he decided, okay, we'll go through all these dif- financial difficulties as a family, we'll do that, let's start from scratch. So that's, uh, that that musical crisis turned out for the better. <laughs>
1: Yeah, in the in the book, you highlight these three concerts that he did. One in 1988, one in 1989, and one in 1994. Why were these concerts so important? Sure.
0: Um, the 1988 concert was the first time that anyone under socialist Vietnam had a solo recital with the saxophone. In other words, it's a huge message that look, this is a really serious and proper mainstream instrument. We should give it the due respect. It could play just as serious music as any classical instrument. So he was performing transcribed classical music with um, guest musicians from the conservatoire as part of that recital. That the, west, the saxophone is not just a mainstream proper instrument, but it is also very much um, aligned with the musical values of Vietnam's traditional musical heritage. So the saxophone could perform original Vietnamese compositions that were based on or inspired by traditional music. So he commissioned three very famous composers. One of them was Do Hong Van, another was Huang Van, to write this kind of instrumental music for him. So, Huang Ben wrote a dance of the Thai people for him, which is based on uh, Thai, ethnic Thai um, folk music. And Do Hong Quan wrote a pretty avant-garde instrumental piece. Some, there was some more like new-age music of his time for him to play, to, to show that it's very compatible with Vietnamese values. It's not as Western as you think. And the third part of that 1988 concert was he introduced, as I mentioned earlier, this was at the height of the light music movement, 1980s. He introduced jazz as international light music, in the sense that we have all this um Vietnamese light music, we have rock and pop that not many people agree with, but they consider it as youth music, but we can have international proper light music, respectable instrumental music. So he introduced jazz pieces, jazz standards like In the Moon, um, Glamulus in the Moon, um, Charlie Parker's Blue Needle. So he, he, he introduced this music to an audience comprising musical dignitaries in Vietnam, the leadership of the conservatoire, the association of musicians, of the Ministry of Culture, of the different song and dance show, to show them that, see, this is all proper, high standard, high artistic value music played on the saxophone and that includes jazz, but he called, at that time, let's, let's just call it international light music, he's telling them. It was very well received to such an extent that the following year, they said, you can do another one if you want. And he did the second one, one year later, and with different repertoire to show that oh, it's, the, the repertoire of saxophone and jazz is quite diverse. So these two concerts, 1988 and 1989, they're very significant because, number one, it introduced jazz as international light music. We don't have to call it jazz, we call it international light music. It's played in the public sphere. It was even broadcast on television because the television station came in, recorded a concert, and it on national TV. And it did influence um, subsequent generations of musicians. And it showed that the saxophone and jazz can be compatible with two things, Vietnamese traditional musical heritage and the high art music form that is classical music. It's called, it's nothing inferior to that. So they were very important. The 1994 concert is very, very significant because, as I mentioned in the book, it, it marks the birth of Vietnamese jazz and original, nuanced sound. That you listen to it, you know it is jazz. But the forms, the tools you quite different from the usual jazz we are familiar with from north america from europe for vietnamese listening to it they would immediately find something familiar Oh, that sounds quite a fair bit like this kind of traditional folk music i would have heard from this region that region or even from hanoi but it's very different the melody is original The rhythm is very different, the feel of it is very different, but (laughs) it's just familiar. So it stands out in that sense that, oh, something new was born in the concert. That's the most significant aspect of the 1994 concert, because he introduced, he premiered premiered three songs there. And that cannot be the end of the story. So he kind of laid out the trajectory for what's to come in the next decade. Or in the next few years, in fact, for this to happen. And a, li- a little bit on a side note, in the sense that it's also significant because that was the first time that a Vietnamese musician, a jazz musician, played a full concert at the Hanoi Opera House. Hanoi Opera House is considered as the pinnacle stage. For any musician, serious musician in Vietnam, you cannot be a second rate, third rate musician to play on that stage in a solo concert. So that, is, that was really significant in that sense that just like when Ben Goodman did the first jazz concert at Carnegie Hall, the significance was tremendous. People in classical music were like, wow, this is fantastic. This is great music, this is really high-quality music. Jazz musicians were really proud. We see, if we are not just dance hall and jazz club musicians. We can play in a proper music hall. And so the sentence is the equivalent of what happened there. But here's the difference. Jazz was just beginning to emerge in Vietnam with this concert. It was nothing yet. But when Benny Goodman held a concert, jazz was huge in America. So it's tremendously significant in that sense.
1: I'm afraid we have we are running out of time here. There are so many more questions I have, and there's so much more in this book. Everyone has something to learn from this. It's such a wonderful book. Uh, My final question before I let you go, as is tradition on the New Books Network, is can you tell us what you're working on now?
0: So, um, okay, um, there's two parts to this, in my answer to your question. The first part is just yesterday, I sent off the page proofs for a a follow-up book on jazz and socialist Vietnam. So the title of this book is Jazz in Socialist Hanoi, Improvisations Between Worlds. This is not a collaborative narrative writing exercise. This is a very um, scholarly approach that, analyze, that analyzes the history of jazz in Socialist Vietnam from 1954 until the present day. Um, the authorship, I'm the, I, like this book, I wrote everything, but it has close collaboration with almost all the musicians in Hanoi, jazz musicians in Hanoi. Every one of them contributed in bits and pieces. But two of them really facilitated the work. They spent many mornings, afternoons, and nights with me talking about their own experiences, talking about their own tech, about the development of jazz. So one of them was uh, Liu Quang Ming, Professor Liu Kuang Ming, who, if Ming was the one who founded the jazz club and started all this thing, Professor Liu Kuang Ming was the one who pushed for the jazz program to be developed at the National Conservatoire and finally becoming a faculty of jazz. So the two of them were very key in developing jazz in Vietnam. So Professor Liu Quang Ming spent many mornings and afternoons with me telling me about his experience, his own text analysis. And the other one is um, Ben Banding's son, Quentin Duck, who, following in his father's footsteps, continued to develop jazz, but in a very different way, in very different experimental way. So he took a lot more risk than the father, in, musically speaking. But at a time when a lot of things were a lot more acceptable, and Duck himself fully understood the kind of risk um, his father took, the kind of sacrifice the father made in order to develop jazz. So they share a lot of things with me to such an extent that when I, I wrote the book, I felt that it was only right then that I included the two of them as my collaborating author. So it's established in collaboration with Liu Guangming and Quentin Tiena for that book. It's going to be out in March. So... Uh, it's a very different form of writing, but it, it, I think these two books go very well together. But this book, for the general readers, they might find it a little bit um, um, boring because it's quite academic in that sense. But, um, but it's quite up to date. It covers until the developments that we see in the past year in Vietnam. What's happening to jazz then? The jazz club has been closed for seven months because of... Um, the the COVID nineteen pandemic. It's been closed for seven months. <laughs> Anyone would have to close shop forever if you own a jazz club, right? So they're still waiting to reopen. So what happened during this time? So the the last chapter truly dealt with very up to date. So reading this book, playing jazz in Socialist Vietnam, academics, serious jazz musicians would want to who have. Questions, so they can follow up with this. Any reader who read that book, who are truly concerned about the people who play jazz in Vietnam, who want to know more of these personal stories the narratives, what did they really go through? You want to read Playing Jazz in Socialist Vietnam? So that's part one of my answer to this the other part is something that um, it's like kind of like going back to my earlier work i'm halfway through a book on there's a historical geography of the railway corridor from kunming yunnan all the way down to hai phong in vietnam so this project took place many years ago um i wrote out almost 90% of the manuscript then but i wasn't happy with what i've written up. so I, set everything aside. In the past few years, I started rewriting. So I've published two chapters elsewhere, I thought, okay, that direction worked. So um, I'm halfway through finishing that book. It will take me at least six more months to finish.
1: The book is Playing Jazz in Socialist Vietnam, published in 2021 with the University Press of Mississippi. Stan B.H. Tan Tangbao, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Adam.